0: Welcome to Lost in the Movies, my podcast covering a different film each time. This episode is going to talk about Before Sunset. In the last entry, I talked about Before Sunrise, which was Richard Licklater's film about two young people meeting in Vienna in the mid-90s and falling in love and spending a night together and then separating. This is the sequel. It takes place in Paris, so in this film, the characters are reunited, and I'll talk about that in the episode. This is part of a trilogy of coverage I'm doing, and the next entry I'll cover before uh, Midnight, which is the third piece and the last up to this point. This is all part of an Ethan Hawke series I'm doing all year throughout 2020, where I'm reviewing different films by him at least once a a month. Um, Well, films starring him, not necessarily by him. I don't, although he is a director as well, I don't think any of the ones that I'm covering were directed by him. If you have any thoughts on this film or on Ethan Hawke in general or also on The Next Entries film if you want to get in uh, some feedback ahead of time I read feedback at the end of each episode so you can hear what I have to say or what you you, know, you and others have to say about these films. Uh before we begin the episode proper I just want to talk about what's been going on Uh, on my site and elsewhere. On YouTube I released a update video for my series Journey Through Twin Peaks covering the David Lynch TV series uh, Twin Peaks. This is a series I began in a series of video essays that I began in 2014. It's certainly the most uh, enjoyed, or widely enjoyed I should say, uh, work that I've done. And I've recently followed up with some new videos on uh, the Season 3 on Showtime in 2017, and also the the work leading up to that by David Lynch and also by some of the uh, co-creators of that series. So I've been a little bit delayed in some of my videos recently, so I wanted to put up an update and just let everyone know what I've been working on and also talk about this podcast so that people who enjoy my video work know that I'm now working in the audio format as well. I also joined the podcast Twin Peaks Unwrapped for something called Season 3 Madness, where we actually ranked all of the episodes from that Showtime season a few years ago. That was a really fun to do. Totally ridiculous exercise to rank these episodes against one another. You know, they're all parts of the same narrative, but it's still fun to do, and it gives you an opportunity to talk about each episode. And there are some big surprises in there um i'll just leave it at that i'll say some of my choices didn't necessarily advance as far in the rankings as i hoped it's called uh season three madness because they take the march madness bracket format where you're uh, which of these two episodes and that goes on to compete against the next one yeah like i said totally ridiculous but totally fun and meanwhile on my patreon for five dollar a month patrons I released my Lost in Twin Peaks episode covering episode 17, which is the first one after the Laura Palmer investigation ends. So that was very interesting to discuss that turn in the series. And then I also opened up an earlier episode for all of my patrons from a dollar a month and up on uh, episode 11, which if you've seen the show, it opens with a warped uh, tour through a ceiling or wall tile. And if that means nothing to you, watch Twin Peaks, and then it'll mean something to you. Okay, so that's it for the updates. And uh, let's get going on this episode on Before Sunset. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fine. All right. I think it like be like this. Um, uh, jump ahead. 10, 20 years. And you're married. only your marriage doesn't have that same energy that it used to have. You start to think about all those guys you've met in your life and what might have happened if you picked up with one of them. Let me get my back. Nine years ago, two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. They are about to meet for the first time since... For so long, you know that yeah, now. Me too. All... How long do we have? Twenty minutes and thirty seconds. Oh, Let's we go. go. <laughs> we got more than that. Now they have one afternoon to find out if they belong together. Before Sunset is the sequel to Before Sunrise. That film was shot in '94, released in '95, and this film, Before Sunset, was shot in uh, 2003 and uh, came out in 2004, or at least takes place around 2003, because it's been nine years. Since the characters saw each other. In the original film, Jesse, played by Ethan Hawke, is an American traveling through Europe. He's just broken up with his girlfriend, and he's a little bit lost, and just taking a trip around to soothe his soul, I guess. He runs into Celine, played by Julie Delpy, on a train coming into Vienna, and he says... Why don't you just come off the train with me? Like they had a good conversation. She agrees. They walk around Vienna all night. They end up making love out in a park uh, under the stars. And in the morning they say, you know, we shouldn't write to each other. We shouldn't call. It's just going to fade if we do that. Why don't we meet back up here in six months? That's that. That's the end of the movie. So nine years later, Richard Linklater, who'd made the first film, was emailing back and forth with the actors. They'd had these ideas for years about, why don't we follow up with the story, see how these characters are doing, and they all wrote it together. And then the way this film is shot, instead of taking place over one night, it takes place over two hours or less than an hour, like probably an hour and a half or so, and it takes place in real time with a lot of long takes with a steady cam following the characters along and they're talking. The premise of the movie is that Jesse has written a book, and it's a book that's obviously about his experience in that first film. And as he describes it to some customers in a Shakespeare and Company in Paris, um, or actually not customers, they're actually reporters, I think, or, or book critics. So he's sitting there and he's talking to them about it. And as he talks about the subject of the book, Link later flashes back to images from the film without the sound of him talking. And we just see these images and they feel kind of iconic now. You know, when we're watching the film that film before sunrise unfolds in a very natural spontaneous way but now looking back on it and framed by these images of him 9 years older talking about it it takes on this mythologized air which is a great way to bring us back into the world of this film one of the reporters is pressing him did you have this experience did you meet a girl like this well yeah sure but that's not the big deal well what happened did you did you end up with her i can't tell you know that would that would ruin the book and all this stuff and they're just talking talking and then he turns and he looks to his right and there's Julie Delpy, nine years older, sitting there watching him. And I think this must have been on Linklater's mind when he shot this. Uh, it's a lot like Harry Lyme in The Doorway in The Third Man, where we've heard about this character, heard about this character, and then suddenly a light goes on he's just standing there smiling. She's kind of the Harry Lyme in this movie, uh, although we don't have half the movie to wait for her. She shows up in the first few minutes, but it's just very quick and to the point. It could be anticlimactic, but instead it just it works very nicely. So... They get together, they're walking around outside, he has a plane to catch, so he's under pressure, and she, the whole time, he's very eager to keep this thing going, to keep walking and talking, and Oh, yeah, yeah, I got to get that plane, but there's no big deal. i get in there two hours early. They'll send a car to get me, et cetera, et cetera. And she's always demurring, deferring, like, well, we don't want you to miss your plane. We're going to make sure you get your plane. You, you have to go. You can't come now. No, we can't do this. Even though she's the one who showed up at the bookstore, she's letting him do the leading in this. And that's an important point because it comes into play at the end. So she tells him that she did want to go on uh, and she says, Did you go there it, to to Vienna? And he says, No, nah, no, nah, I didn't I didn't go. How about you or whatever? And she says I couldn't, I, I really wanted to. I'm so glad you weren't there. I would have felt so guilty. Uh but I couldn't go. My grandmother died. She talked about a lot about her grandmother in the first film. She says, Yeah, she was Really sick and she ended up dying and her funeral was actually that day the day that we were supposed to meet up in Vienna, December sixteenth, nineteen ninety four. But why didn't you go? You you don't have an excuse and then he grins sheepishly and she goes, Oh my god, you did go, didn't you? And you didn't see me. Oh, I feel so bad and he's Oh no, no, it's not a big deal and so they kinda walk around and they talk through the whole couple hours. She's a activist, she's involved with an environmental charity or probably more of an action group and she is living with a photojournalist who is always traveling, so he's not around, and she kind of sees him sporadically. And Jesse is married, and he has a son. And she already knows this. She read the article about him. And it's interesting how this comes up. It doesn't come up that he's married until halfway through the film i think he's probably got a wedding ring on and an astute viewer would notice and look at that well i did remember that he was married so maybe i wasn't looking this time but she knows that he's whatever happened between them and could have happened is over they've moved on with their lives but isn't it nice now that they can talk and they can be very mature and adult about it and you know talk about this and as the time goes on this sort of cracks emerge and vulnerabilities and some awkwardness and uh and then finally it comes out that when they're driving in a car where he's cajoled her into having their car take her back to her apartment it comes out that that uh first of all he's not happy in his marriage he's just not in love with his wife basically he loves his son but he married her because she got pregnant and they were off and on and he thought i'll do this i'll be responsible this is the right thing and it just, uh, it wasn't the right thing, really, and they're not happy together. And she, on the other hand, uh, is is kind of miserable, and she's had so many relationships, and they've all just ended, they've broken up, and then the man has gone on and gotten married like immediately after. They broke up, so she's just feeling worn and like almost used in a way. They'll tell her afterwards that she taught them how to love. So she's unhappy, he's unhappy, and they finally admit this to each other. But they don't admit it in a sort of a gentle way. She's getting really upset, and she's upset with him. She says she was fine until she read his book and had to relive this moment and feel like she'd lost so much, she'd lost that romanticism of her youth. And it was all tied up with him in that night. She calms down. He comes clean to her. Because been a little bit been putting on a front, it feels like. I mean, they both have. Both of them have been putting on this front throughout the movie. And now they're a little more vulnerable. They kind of calm down. And they go to her room. He says, oh, she'll, you know, sing a song for me. You said you wrote some songs. So she sings a song. And it's all about him. And it's a moment of admission, in a way. Inadvert- well, adv- very advertent at this point. But sort of hidden up to this point that no, this is something she's thought quite a lot about and she really cherished that night. And, and there's also a point earlier, I mentioned this in my previous review, cause I remembered this moment. I didn't remember all the details of it though, where she says, well, we didn't have sex that night. And he says, yeah, we did. You don't remember. Oh God, that's so embarrassing. And then it turns out uh, she does indeed remember. And she was just, Sort of it was another another thing that she was trying to hold back so that she wouldn't feel quite as quite as vulnerable and quite as uh weak I think there's a sense in which there seems to be something of a trust issue here, and I think this is the fascinating thing about this movie, and it's something I didn't really feel was present in the first film, but now retro- retroactively, I almost want to go back and look at it in this light. Where these are characters who talk and talk and talk, and they seem to be bearing all of their feelings and not withholding anything, but in this film, at least, they're withholding a lot, and they're they're presenting, so they're they're putting up this front that they somehow each have to get past. And the funny thing is, at the end of the movie, she's making him tea. She's playing Nina Simone. He's looking at the pictures on the wall, and he says, "Oh, there's you with your you do as a little kid. Oh, there's you with your grandmother as a little kid." And he makes sure to ask her, "Is that your grandmother?" Yep. Looks up, and there she is with her grandmother as a young woman. Now, even as I say this, I'm thinking, well, maybe it was just her. Maybe it was just her and her 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 grandmother, like right before she died. I mean, she was a young woman when she died. Well, supposedly, when her grandmother died, it was right after they met in Vienna. But that, while well watching it, that wasn't the impression I had. And now, now I'm actually questioning myself. I started this review thinking one thing, and now I'm wondering if I'm thinking, reading too much into it. I looked at it, and I thought, wait a second. Her grandmother is either still alive or was alive until very recently. It looks like an older Julie, Julie Delphi than Delphi was in uh, Before Sunrise. And I love that idea. I hope it's true. Now I've got to go back and check and you can tell me what you think and maybe i'll find out if they mention it before midnight and i kind of hope they don't and i like the fact that they didn't in this film uh i th- i think that she her grandmother was alive and one of two things could be the case i think the more the more kind of realistic or plausible option is she just was nervous she didn't want to go cuz she didn't want to be that person And this is evident throughout this film that she doesn't want to be hurt, you know. And she says it like it's something that's developed over time, but I think there's a sense that it was probably always there somewhat. And she doesn't want to be hurt. She doesn't want to be disappointed. And she just, she doesn't go to Vienna. And she comes up with this excuse later, but only to find out he did go and now feel like internally kicking herself like, oh, wait, he did go. He wasn't just blowing me off or whatever. The other option is maybe she did go and maybe he's lying about having gone. Uh, I don't think that's the case though. He's, he just, he seems to be a character who really does, you know, I said they both put up a front and that's true, but he seems to wear his, his heart on his sleeve a bit more than she does, which complicates things somewhat. I have some Thoughts about this dynamic between them, and I'm really curious to see Before Midnight. It's the only one of these films I haven't seen before, so I'm going into it blind. Like, after talking about these two earlier films and wondering what's going to be the case, I do know, spoiler alert, I guess, fast forward 15 seconds. If you don't want to know under the premise of Before Midnight, I'm pretty sure they're married at that point, and they've been together since the end of this film. I'm, I, I think I read that. I think they might have kids and everything like that. I want to see what these characters would be like in a longer term relationship because so much of their dynamic has to do with being caught in this sort of fleeting moment and feeling that they're going to be pulled apart again. That's the case in Before Sunrise. It's the case in this film until the very, very tip top of the end. And I, I have questions about how they would do longer term. We'll get into that more. I think maybe I'll be able to articulate some of that more after I see Before Midnight. I can compare any reality of whatever we see in that movie to what I'm thinking and have in mind. One thing worth noting, I mentioned before Sunrise, I really wasn't crazy about the Jesse character. I found him kind of obnoxious, a little less so as the film went along. And I think in this film's sort of a similar dynamic, when he's talking to the reporters, he comes off to me as a little full of himself. And I don't don't necessarily want to use the word pretentious. It's a little overused, but it doesn't come off in that flattering of light. And there's times during their walk where he still has that like antsy, pushy, that's a kind of an energy that I find a little irritating in the film. And again, it's like, uh, I usually like Ethan Hawke, so I don't think it's, it's the actor particularly. It's just the way he plays this character. There's something about him that gets a little irritating. And to me, in this film, when he finally, when he, when I finally started to find him more sympathetic, was in the car scene because a couple things happened there. I think this, he has a bit of a narcissist about him in both films. I think he talks about himself a lot, and even when he's listening to her, he just has all these ideas and opinions that he's throwing out there all the time. And and I wonder to a degree if that's quality is what made her, uh, feel like if, if, you know, that other theory is cor- correct, the idea that she. Decided not to go, which I think is the correct thing, that she decided not to go in in December of 94 because she just just thought he he won't be there or something. I think he has a little bit of an overriding quality. I think even though he comes off as needy and wanting her and, and, and leading the way and all that, the fact that he seems maybe a little narcissistic, I think maybe... Maybe he's sending off this vibe. This is about me, and therefore, when I lose interest or move on, you're going to be cast by the wayside. If that's just almost like a subliminal message he's sending off, I don't know. But to me, the car scene was great because, for the first time, he seems almost like more human in a way. Like, he's not talking about these sort of abstract thoughts and philosophies of life, which he's doing already less in this film than he did in the previous one, but he's he's talking about just sort of real, tangible Everyday reality that he deals with, like the stuff with his wife, when he get just breaks down and is like, man, I've, I've a, candles. I've tried to like, see marriage therapy. You know, I've tried to reignite the spark, but that's just not there. Like that just feels so real in a way. And when she starts talking about her problems, he suddenly, for the first time, there's something humble about him in that moment, and there's something somewhat generous where he's, he actually tries to reassure her. On the boat, he dismisses this idea he had of being, quote unquote, his better self and all that. But I think in that moment of the car, he is trying to be his, his better self in a way. And I think it's a more, to me at least, it's a little bit more of a sympathetic portrayal in a way. So anyways, the film ends there. He's not going to catch his plane. He knows it. They finally, it's almost like they finally clicked. Like they, they have this connection throughout the whole film and they have an energy and a dynamic. But they're a little bit at cross purposes. They're a little withholding. They're a little things aren't quite right, you know, between them. And it's like they finally vibed in this last scene where she's singing Nina Simone, and she's finally comfortable. She's not telling him constantly telling him, oh, don't you have to go? Don't you have to do something? And that's the other thing is like there's a mixed message where she's sending. Where it's like you you could read it as she's kind of uncomfortable. She doesn't want him there, but. I think what they're trying to convey with with her constantly reminding him doesn't he have to go is she wants to test and make sure that he really wants to be there for her. So where are they going to be? Where are they going to end up? It seems like finally, after this long period apart, they, they may have finally found their way back to one another and really found their way back to one another. The whole film is the process of scraping away at the barrier that's grown between them in the passage of a decade and their separate lives. That's kind of what's going on here. It's not just like a free-floating conversation. There's a drama to it. And this is a film, I think, even more than Before Sunrise, it would be fun to like go back and watch it after making it to the end and knowing it, these things and then watching it again and keeping an eye out for what they're not saying, and what they're not doing. And, you know, in a way I was doing it this time, because I had seen this film before, but I'd seen it probably 10 years ago. And so there was a lot I didn't remember. One last thing I want to note is, uh, with Before Sunrise, I talked about the zeitgeist and the era that it took place in, the mid-90s. There's just this glow, this optimism in the air in Europe, it was like the cold war's over that i mentioned specifically in that review the idea of the end of history and it felt like they were living in that a little bit like it felt like they were living in this moment where their youth just matched up with the spirit of the times as well where everything was new the communist regimes had fallen and europe was now supposedly reuniting and you could look back over this whole tumultuous 20th century and feel like it was it was behind you. It was in the past. It was history and you are now living in this ever present moment. And you know, what happens when the present ends. That's kind of the story of the zeros, the twenty-first century, the aughts call them what you what you want that decade is the story of what happens when history being over is over. And you can feel that in this film. I don't think they ever explicitly mention Iraq or Bush, but they talk about politics and she says something about an imperialist country says oh i i wonder which imperialist country you're talking about she talks a lot about the environment and concern and there's a sense again of living in time and living in history and you know part of that has to do with the characters growing older but i i do feel like there's something about that time as well that just was different and i think as much as before sunrise captures the feeling of the 90s i think this film does capture that feeling of the zeros and that exhaustion and frustration manifested through the characters' personal lives, but part of this larger story of the times. And it's funny watching it because I'm a good, I guess, 10 years behind these characters. They're very much Gen X, or probably born in the early 70s. Literally, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi were born in probably, you know, between the like 68 and 72 or something like that. So they're like young people in the 90s, they're in their 30s in the next decade. And then they're in their forties by the time of this last film. So I'm watching this now and I'm roughly the age. I think I'm a few years, a couple years older than the characters in this film, in this, in, you know, the time I'm presently living in now, obviously, but I look at it and it's like, well, how much of this feel of this film and a little bit of the weariness of it is due to them having now lived 10 years more and being, in their 30s, having wet water under the bridge. And how much of it is just those times? Because I was 20 at this time, and I felt a lot like I think the characters feel in this movie a little exhausted by the world and frustrated and like there was something already in the past that was missed, like a, the, the, there wasn't a possibility for romanticism anymore. So I don't know. It's a good match of characters and story and uh, just the time that it was made. So I very much look forward to seeing Before Midnight not just for the characters, but seeing how it captures the spirit of its times as well, how that's a constant thing with with Linklater's films, and particularly these films in an indirect way capturing that zeitgeist. Thanks for listening, and if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on iTunes. You can subscribe there as well, and that's great. Probably the best thing you can do is rate it, write a review. That's what gets it promoted more on iTunes, so more people will see it. Right now, people are seeing it Uh, mostly who are already listeners to or viewers of my other work elsewhere. So they're, you know, I'm leading them to this. But I'd love for it to start showing up in people's searches for particular films or movies in general on iTunes so that they can find it that way. And uh, you can help in that process. Also, if you really enjoy what I'm doing and you want to hear much, much more, consider becoming a patron uh, month to month for a dollar a month. You will not just have access to a new huge, usually two or three hour episode each month, but also a huge archive of hundreds of hours of material. Uh, What I'm releasing publicly right now, which is often from my archives, is just like a small sliver of that. So you can hear much more there. And if you become a patron for $5 a month, you're a Twin Peaks fan, you can hear Uh, brand new episodes of my lost in twin peaks podcast month to month you get the them when they drop right away instead of having to wait a half a year to hear more like most of the other patrons so those are some of the perks of that you can also check out my work at lostinthemovies.com and lost in the movies on youtube now let's play a little bit of a taste for the next episode which of course is going to be before midnight concluding this trilogy And how did you two meet? We met about eighteen years ago. We kinda sorta fell in love. And a decade later we ran into each other. No, no, no. You wrote a book and I read about it and went to look for it. Oh, that's pretty romantic.